Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. and ride out this cold night in the Shenandoah with us. Last week, I talked about being very much certain about satanic cults that would be coming for me as a child. Of course, I managed to avoid that. I also mentioned that I might have been introduced to the scary world of terror and horror at that time. As I've thought about it, that's correct. I believe that the first author that I had read who wrote horror was Frank Peretti, the name, I'd wager, is unfamiliar to most because he wrote for a rather niche market, the Christian fiction market, that is. The first two books that I read of his were his This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. The stories are about demonic inclusions into the human world and the angels that battle them. It's pretty dark reading, and I'm not quite sure how those books managed to get past my parental filters probably because it has the title of Christian on it. However, I recently skimmed through another book of Peretti's called The Oath, and for the few passages I've reread, it has held up well, and isn't so heavy-handed with the Christian message. But don't get me wrong, it's still a Christian book with a Christian message. So, if that's not your bag of communion wafers, give it a pass. But I may put this book back on my to-read list to see how it's held up. But let's get on to our fiction. We won't be hearing any of Mr. Pretty's stuff tonight. Maybe another evening. We have two stories for the evening. The first comes to us from John Everson. John shares a deep purple den in Naperville, Illinois, with a cockatoo and cockatiel, a disparate collection of fake skulls, twisted skeletal fairies, Alan Clark illustrations, and a large stuffed eeyore. There's also a mounted Chinese fowling spider named Stoker, an ever-growing shelf of custom-mixed CDs and acoustic guitar that he can't really play, 
but that his son likes to hear him beat on anyway. Sometimes his wife is surprised to find him shuffling through more public areas of the house, but it's usually only to brew another cup of coffee. In order to avoid the onerous task of writing, he occasionally records pop rock songs in a hidden home studio, experiments with the insatiable culinary joys of the jalapeno, designs book covers for a variety of small presses, loses hours in expanding an array of gardens, and chases frequent excursions into the bizarre visual headspace of 70s Euro horror DVDs with a shot of Maker's Mark and a tall glass of Newcastle. Learn more about John on his site, www.johneverson.com, where you can sign up for his direct from the author monthly email with information on new books, contests, and occasionally free fiction. And now let's listen to John Everson's Remember Me, My Husband, which was originally published in Terminal Fright, September 1994. I'm married to two incredible women, one dead and one alive. Is this bigamy? Or since one of those wives was not married to me beneath the myopic eyes of a preacher, are my romantic dalliances in the graveyard merely adultery? They came for my car first. Banks are funny that way. They'll send a couple of monkey men out to break into and drive away your auto over a couple grand, but when you owe them fifty times that on a house payment... They'll let it ride and ride. But even then, sooner or later, the man shows up at your door and makes the demand. Pay up or get out. It's funny. The guys who come for your car look like goons, but the guy who comes for your house wears a suit and tie, round, glinting wire glasses, and a nervous laugh. It was after the nervous laugh dissipated. Slowly, as a cloud of sewer gas fades on a still-as-death summer day, that my living wife, Joanne, announced that as long as I was losing everything else in my life, she'd be taking a powder as well. I can't watch anymore, she cried, the words gurgling up in a fleshy throat from some deep underwater cavern. Her makeup ran like wax, her brown eyes shiny and ringed in mascara. I love you, baby, I thought, but said nothing. What more was there to say? I couldn't blame her. I'd lost my job, lost my backbone, lost me. And with that despair, piece by piece, my life was slipping away faster than the laugh of the nervous eviction man had stopped echoing in the empty, empty foyer. It only takes a few months to erase the work of years. I love you, but it doesn't matter, Joanne was still sobbing. You won't do anything, and I can't help you anymore. She stood in the middle of our dingy living room, suitcase at her feet, shoulders slumped. The twenty or thirty pounds that years of casseroles had congratulated her with were not attractive when she abandoned the strictures of good posture. My own untucked oversized t-shirt couldn't hide the blessings of overeating and underactivity either. But as my mind shot Polaroids at Joanne's pathetic whimpering, and my own listless carcass stretched lazily across her old brown sofa, I found I didn't care. Fat, skinny, tearful, laughing, the extremes of life affected me not in the least. Eventually, Joanne's snuffling sobs and the ultimatum represented by the suitcase both drifted away. 
The shifting orange of sunset slid across the walls, and still I lay motionless. I can't tell you myself how I came to be there, in this room in my head, permitting no caring, no interest in living. They were hard blows, sure, but why they affected me as they did. The worst was watching my parents slip into the grave without being able to say goodbye. There wasn't much left to say goodbye to of Dad, and Mom never woke from the coma. It was a familiar story. Drunk driver hits old couple head on, he lives, they die. But it's never real until it's your own family that chalks up another scratch on the statistic boards. Joanne worked hard to pull me through. And then, just as things seemed to be getting better, the factory closed. Mother GM couldn't afford to lose the millions of dollars a year our plant was flushing down the drain anymore. Those two events, and the thousand tiny fires on the soul they engendered, burned out my will. And on that, the night of my necrotic marriage, as the shadows died and the streetlight winked into life across the street, I knew where I had to go. Maybe I'd known it since I watched the green jagged line flatten on the tiny TV screen next to my father's bed. Or maybe it was my mother's silent passing mere hours after his own. Did she know somehow? Did she feel him slip away into the darkness? Did he call to her as his heart ceased to hammer? I slid from the couch. The forest whispered at its violation as my flash bobbed along the trail, sometimes reflecting just for a second off a pair of luminescent eyes. In all my years of coming here to bury my troubles, I had never run into another person stalking these trails. The animals lurking just beyond the bounds of my flash were not used to being routed from the hunting schedules by wayward humans after dusk. The stories were responsible for that. The same tales that drew the curious during the day, witnessed their discarded pop and beer cans littering the brush, kept them locked up safe and sound after dark. I think almost every town has a place like Bachelor's Grove. A place of creepy stories to scare children. A place of midnight magic. Named for the status of the German men who pioneered a settlement here in the 1800s to rough out homesteads before sending back to the continent for their beloveds, little remains to mark their labor now. The forest betrays few secrets. The foundations they struggle to lay down are hidden beneath dirt and vine. The wood of their rustic homes long burnt or carted away. All that remains is a fenced-in clearing tucked inside the whispering forest, a short walk from the turnpike. From that road, all that's visible is a green, scum-covered pond. But beyond that rancid water is the subject of many a Boy Scout campfire tale, Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. As a boy, I heard numerous ghost stories about the fabled cemetery, the woman who cried in the night as she paced the earth in a hopeless search for her stillborn child, the house of blue fire, that beckon foolish mortals inside to their death. But as numerous as the stories were, the descriptions of where the graveyard lay, and for many years I believed that even the cemetery itself was a fable, it is not. On a boozing run with some guys in high school, we discovered the gravesite during a search for a place to drink and not be seen by cops or parents. Under the harsh glare of a nearly full white moon, we walked down a gravel trail and straight into the eerie stand of decaying stones. Being brash and brave as all 17-year-olds, 
We laughed loudly and scoffed at the stories of Ella Marie Steuben, the woman who reputedly drifted wispily and weepily out of a hollowed earth, searching in vain for her baby every now and again. But the laughter fell falsely on the rocky ground, and the night ended early. And somehow or other, our group never looked in that particular forest for a drinking spot again. But I returned. Call it morbidity or stupidity, the stories of Ella and the Blue House and of numerous other ghosts, including that of a manic stage ghost that supposedly appeared and rushed through the trees at a breakneck speed to vanish with an audible splash into the green pond. These were the touchstones of my childhood, the cherished adrenaline pumpers that made me both pray that there was a ghostly life after death and at the same time beg that I never encountered it. In this life, anyway. An older, more skeptical me returned with some regularity to sit at these stones when life became too thick to move through. But over the years, the thrill of flirting with the supernatural turned to heavy sadness. The latest burial date in Bachelor's Grove reached back to the 1960s, the earliest readable ones to the late 1880s. No longer in my adulthood did these crumbling stones speak of mystery or provoke a frantic heartbeat after dark. They stood only as sentinels to the void of death. Bachelor's Grove Cemetery cried out to me in loneliness, and in it I found a kindred emptiness of spirit. And on the night of my second marriage, this is where I came to die. What better place, I thought, as I sat down heavily before the towering gray stone mocking the final resting place of Ella Marie Steuben's bones. Next to the large pillow was a much smaller one, a nameless marker. It read with simplistic and chilling factuality, Baby Girl. This, no doubt, was where the ghost stories of Ella's night walks and bereavement of a child stem from. I uncorked a bottle of wild turkey and took a deep swig. Bottoms up, I coughed, and held the fifth of amber bourbon up in the direction of the tombstone. I'll be with you soon, Ella, I whispered, and took another burning swallow. The moon was not obliging this night. The sky writhed in thick royals of cloud, and as the temperature dipped, the ground, too, was clothed in cloud. It was as if I sat in a limbo between an earth and sky of gray, chillingly damp fog. But the liquor warmed the trail to my belly, and my flashlight lay beside me on the ground, its beam reflecting off the headstone with a sickly glow. 1854-1883 was carved beneath her name. The faded epitaph was still readable in the shadowy light. She always took care of her own. Will you take care of me, Ella? I asked aloud. I've sat with you many nights, you know. The trees around me shivered in response, and a shadow of dread seemed all at once to encircle my heart. Suddenly, my witty repartee with the cold earth and stone seemed not altogether wise. I kept quiet then, concentrating on nothing but getting a good drunk going. When I downed half the bottle, I decided it was time. I needed the steadiness and will of what remained of my sobriety to finish this. Withdrawing a razor from my coat pocket, I rested its edge on my wrist. If I owned a gun, I would have used it instead. i never been a believer in the long, drawn-out methods of snuffing oneself. Poison could be long, painful, and ultimately uncertain. Hanging, if it doesn't break your neck, can also be a somewhat lengthy process. But without a gun, I thought a steady bleed of life under the anesthetic of bourbon should be relatively painless. 
holding my wrist out over the barren earth, I stared at the sky and drew the blade up my arm. The pain was more than I'd expected, and my razor hand was trembling in cold and fear before I finished. With hot red blood leaking out over my other arm, I used my injured hand to inflict a similar wound on my other wrist. I made the mistake of looking at them then, these warm, wet, crimson hands whose lifeblood darkened the black earth deeper. The blood steamed thick amid the fog. My stomach churned, and with a rush of nausea, the liquor and acid of my gullet were abruptly dripping through my nose and mouth to the ground beside me. When it was finished, I wiped my face with a bloody sleeve and slumped back to the stone. Taking a deep swallow of the bottle, I shakily spoke to Ella again. I'll be with you soon now, I said, as a tear worked its way through the vile smears on my cheek. I leaned back and closed my eyes. The forest seemed insubstantial suddenly, as far away as the troubles that drove me here. Leaves rustled nearby, a coon or a possum, no doubt, spying on the source of the light. It wouldn't take long, I thought. Already I could feel my strength draining into the earth, my life rushing away from me like a river after the spring thaws. I didn't think I had the strength now to move, but I could hear every beat of my heart louder than the last. It pounded in my ears so strong that I almost didn't look up when my light suddenly rolled away and something grasped my leg. But I did find the last ounce of strength to look, and that strength then led to a hopeless scream. Rising out of the blood-stained soil was an arm, or rather, an arm bone, its yellowed, worm-ridden hand wrenched my leg with increasing pressure. Ella Marie Steuben was trying to pull me into her grave. With a ripple of shifting, slurping mud, another arm appeared. Loose, slimy earth dripped over my body as the second skeletal arm reached across and wrapped around my waist. I screamed again, this time in pain as Ella used my body. Not trying to pull me in, I realized, but used me as leverage to rise. A skull broke earth, shaking the dirt from her eye sockets and gifting my face with the wet splatter decay. Inside my head, a sane voice screamed, Escape. It was like moving underwater. But I willed myself to roll away from the clutching bones and stumbled erect. She stepped fully out of the earth then and came for me. I wet my pants and gagged on my own saliva as my feet stayed glued to the earth. She stood nearly as tall as myself, a bony skeleton draped in tangles of thin, dark roots and pink worms and the tatters of something I told myself was once a dress and not flesh. Something thick and glittery hung from her neck and dangled through her ribs. Her eye sockets were menacingly blank, and she stretched out hands lacking several crucial bones in my direction. I tried to run, but in my drunken, dying weakness I stumbled to one knee. And then those bones, ripe with the smell of deep, ancient earth, encircled my neck and dragged me backwards. My head hit the ground, and whatever will I had retained was lost in pinpoints of angry light. I lay still then, unprotesting, as those bones in incomprehensible animation crawled around my body, coming to rest atop me. I stared into the empty skull an inch from my eyes to see the cloud-rumpled sky through her unhinged jaw. She was missing several teeth. The rank perfume of worms assailed my nose, and I felt the urge to vomit again. But instead the skull leaned closer, touching its icy wet teeth to my lips. I slipped out of consciousness then, 
But in that instant in between, I saw Ella not in death, but in life. Long, flowing, golden hair tickle my face as a thick, blood-red lips disengaged from my own. Her eyes glinted blue in the dim illumination still available from the displaced flash, and freckles dotted her nose and cheeks. I think I said, I love you. She smiled, and her teeth were flawlessly white. The birds were chirping loud around me when I woke, cold and confused. When I finally forced my eyes open, the sunlight was blinding. Everything hurt. I sat up, reaching out a throbbing, cold hand to rub my pounding head. The wrist was bound with bloody cloth. A shredded piece of my shirt, I realized, and saw that my other arm was likewise bandaged. So even bleeding to death is taken away from me, I thought at that moment, and then noticed the ground beside me. Etched in the ground, damp of my blood, were four words. Remember me, my husband. Husband, I thought, and absently looked at my fourth finger of my left hand, the finger that for eight years had held my gold wedding band in a disengageable grasp. It was bare. A sickly, white ring of flesh marked where it had once been. On the pinky finger, beside it was a new ring. It didn't fit past the knuckle, but it glinted with the prism of a diamond in the morning light. It was a woman's wedding band, and I found that my neck was also cuffed by the muddy jewelry of my dead wife, a heavy diamond necklace. I stared in disbelief at the words on the ground, the words on a headstone, and thought of the words represented by my new jewelry. I knew that somewhere below my trembling knees, the skeleton of a long-dead, freckled blonde now wore my wedding ring. Would she require a consummation? Had she already taken it? Staggering out of the graveyard, I ran for home. I probably could have used stitches and a transfusion, but instead I cleaned and disinfected myself, bound my wrist with clean gauze, and slept through the next haze of days. Then one morning I pulled on my best clothes, got on a bus, and went to a jeweler. They apparently don't make many diamond necklaces like Ella's anymore, and I felt awful pawning it, but the money got me a used car for a couple hundred bucks, and paid my mortgage back up for a while. Maybe that's why she left it with me. But nothing could make me part with the ring. Joanne came back to me after I proved that things were turning around. She didn't even ask how when I said my wedding ring was lost. She just nodded quietly and took me downtown to buy a new one. I had one of the diamonds from Ella's set in the new band. I didn't tell Joanne. How could I tell her anything about Ella? The new job stinks, but it pays the mortgage and buys flowers. It's funny, really. It took the love of a dead woman to bring me back to life. And I try to make her happy. I do. In this gray, forgotten cemetery, haunted by the ghosts of lonely souls, I hear the bones of one freckled blonde rustle with the pleasure of attention each time I lay a bouquet upon that discolored ground where the rain has yet to wash away her bone-etched plea. Remember me, my husband. Each night, as I gift her grave with roses the color of my blood, I read those words aloud and answer, I do. That was John Everson's Remember Me, My Husband, as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas, 
He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs, and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and that he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs, but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. And of course, as always, link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jedediah. Our second story of the night comes from Robert Block. Yes, that Robert Block. Robert Albert Block was a prolific American writer. He was the son of Raphael Ray Block, a bank cashier, and his wife Stella Loeb, a social worker, both of German-Jewish descent. Block wrote hundreds of short stories and over 20 novels, usually crime fiction, science fiction, and perhaps most influentially, horror fiction, such as Psycho. He was one of the youngest members of the Lovecraft Circle. Lovecraft was Block's mentor and one of the first to seriously encourage his talent. He was a contributor to pulp magazines such as Weird Tales in his early career and was also a prolific screenwriter. He was the recipient of the Hugo Award for his story That Hellbound Train, the Bram Stoker Award, and the World Fantasy Award. He served his term as president of the Mystery Writers of America. Robert Bloch was also a major contributor to science fiction, fanzines, and fandom in general. In the 1940s, he created the humorous character Lefty Feep in a story for Fantastic Adventures. He also worked for a time in local vaudeville and worked to break into writing for nationally known performers. He was a good friend of the science fiction writer Stanley G. Weinbaum. In the 1960s, he wrote three stories for Star Trek. Now we will hear yours truly, Jack the Ripper. One. I looked at the stage Englishman. He looked at me. Sir Guy Hollis, I asked. Indeed. Have I the pleasure of addressing John Comedy, the psychiatrist? I nodded. My eyes swept over the figure of my distinguished visitor. Tall, lean, sandy-haired, with the traditional tufted mustache, and the tweeds. I suspected a monocle concealed in a vest pocket, and wondered if he'd left his umbrella in the outer office. But more than that, I wondered what the devil had impelled Sir Guy Hollis of the British Embassy to seek out a total stranger here in Chicago. Sir Guy didn't help matters any as he sat down. He cleared his throat, glanced around nervously, tapped his pipe against the side of the desk. Then he opened his mouth. 
Mr. Carmody, he said, have you ever heard of Jack the Ripper? The murderer, I asked. Exactly, the greatest monster of them all, worse than Spring Heel Jack or Crippen. Jack the Ripper, Red Jack. I've heard of him, I said. Do you know his history? I don't think we'll get any place swapping old wives' tales about famous crimes of history. He took a deep breath. This is no old wives' tale. It's a matter of life or death. He was so wrapped up in his obsession, he even talked that way. Well, I was willing to listen. We psychiatrists get paid for listening. Go ahead, I told him. Let's have the story. Sir Guy lit a cigarette and began to talk. London, 1888, he began. Late summer and early fall. That was the time. Out of nowhere came the shadowy figure of Jack the Ripper, a stalking shadow with a knife, prowling through London's east end, haunting the squalid dives of Whitechapel, Spitalfields. Where he came from no one knew, but he brought death. Death in a knife. Six times that knife descended to slash the throats and bodies of London's women, drabs and alley sluts, August 7th was the date of the first butchery. They found her body lying there with 39 stab wounds, a ghastly murder. On August 3rd, another victim. The press became interested. The slum inhabitants were more deeply interested still. Who was this unknown killer who prowled in their midst and struck at will in the deserted alleyways of Night Town? And what was more important, when would he strike again? September 8th was the date. Scotland Yard assigned special deputies. Rumours ran rampant. The atrocious nature of the slayings was the subject for shocking speculation. The killer used a knife. Expertly. He cut throats and removed certain portions of the bodies after death. He chose victims and settings with a fiendish deliberation. No one saw him or heard him, but watchmen making their grey rounds in the dawn would stumble across the hacked and horrid thing that was the Ripper's handiwork. Who was he? What was he? A mad surgeon, a butcher, an insane scientist, a pathological degenerate escaped from an asylum, a deranged nobleman, a member of the London police. Then the poem appeared in the newspapers, the anonymous poem, designed to put a stop to speculations but which only aroused public interest to a further frenzy, a mocking little stanza. I'm not a butcher, I'm not a yid, nor yet a foreign skipper, but I'm your own true loving friend, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. And then, on September 30th, two more throats were slashed open. There was silence then in London for a time, silence and a nameless fear. When would Red Jack strike again? They waited through October. Every figment of fog concealed his phantom presence. Concealed it well, for nothing was learned of the Ripper's identity. or his purpose. The drabs of London shivered in the raw wind of early November. Shivered and were thankful for the coming of each morning's sun. November 9th. They found her in her room. She lay there, very quietly, limbs neatly arranged. And beside her, with equal neatness, were laid her breasts and heart. The Ripper had outdone himself in execution. Then panic. But needless panic. For though press, police, and populace alike waited in sick dread, Jack the Ripper did not strike again. Months passed, a year, the immediate interest died, but not the memory. They said Jack had skipped to America, that he had committed suicide. 
They said, and they wrote, they've written ever since, theories, hypotheses, arguments, treatises. But to this day, no one knows who Jack the Ripper was, or why he killed, or why he stopped killing. Sir Guy was silent. Obviously, he expected some comment from me. You tell the story well, I remarked, though with a slight emotional bias. I suppose you want to know why I'm interested, he snapped. Yes, that's exactly what I'd like to know. Because, said Sir Guy Hollis, I am on the trail of Jack the Ripper now. I think he's here in Chicago. Say that again? Jack the Ripper is alive in Chicago and I'm out to find him. He wasn't smiling. It wasn't a joke. See here, I said. What was the date of these murders? August to November, 1888. 1888. But if Jack the Ripper was an able-bodied man in 1888, he'd surely be dead today. Why, look, man, if he were merely born in that year, he'd be 57 years old today. Would he? smiled Sir Guy Hollis. Or, I say, would she? Because Jack the Ripper may have been a woman, or any number of things. Sir Guy, I said, you came to the right person when you looked me up. You definitely need the services of a psychiatrist. Perhaps. Tell me, Mr. Comedy, do you think I'm crazy? I looked at him and shrugged, but I had to give him a truthful answer. Frankly, no. Then you might listen to the reasons I believe Jack the Ripper is alive today. I might. I've studied these cases for... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
thirty years, been over the actual ground, talked to officials, talked to friends and acquaintances of the poor drabs who were killed, visited with men and women in the neighborhood, collected an entire library of material touching on Jack the Ripper, studied all the wild theories or crazy notions. I learned a little. Not much, but a little. I won't bore you with my conclusions, but there was another branch of inquiry that yielded more fruitful return. I have studied unsolved crimes. Murders. I could show you clippings from the papers of half the world's greatest cities. San Francisco, Shanghai, Calcutta, Omsk, Paris, Berlin, Pretoria, Cairo, Milan, Adelaide. The trail is there, the pattern. Unsolved crimes, slashed throats of women, with the peculiar disfigurations and removals. Yes, I've followed a trail of blood. From New York westward across the continent, then to the Pacific, from there to Africa. During the World War of 1914 to 18, it was Europe. After that, South America. And since 1930, the United States again. Eighty-seven such murders. And to the trained criminologist, all bear the stigma of the Ripper's handiwork. Recently, there were the so-called Cleveland torso slayings, remember? A shocking series. And finally, two recent deaths in Chicago. Within the past six months, one out on South Dearborn, the other somewhere up on Halstead. Same type of crime, same technique. I tell you, there are unmistakable indications in all these affairs, indications of the work of Jack the Ripper. A very tight theory. I said. I'll not question your evidence at all, or the deductions you draw. You're the criminologist, and I'll take your word for it. Just one thing remains to be explained. A minor point, perhaps, but worth mentioning. And what is that? asked Sir Guy. Just how could a man of, let us say, eighty-five years commit these crimes? For if Jack the Ripper was around thirty in 1888 and lived, he'd be eighty-five today. "'Suppose he didn't get any older,' whispered Sir Guy. "'What's that? "'Suppose Jack the Ripper didn't grow old. "'Suppose he is still a young man today.' "'It's a crazy theory, I grant you,' he said. "'All the theories about the Ripper are crazy. "'The idea that he was a doctor, or a maniac, or a woman, "'the reasons advanced for such beliefs are flimsy enough. "'There's nothing to go by, so why should my notion be any worse?' "'Because people grow older, I reasoned with him. Doctors, maniacs, and women alike. What about sorcerers? Sorcerers, necromancers, wizards, practicers of dark magic. What's the point? I studied, said Sir Guy. I studied everything. After a while, I began to study the dates of the murders, the pattern those dates formed, the rhythm the solar, lunar, stellar rhythm, the sidereal aspect, the astrological significance. Suppose Jack the Ripper didn't murder for murder's sake alone. Suppose he wanted to make a sacrifice. What kind of a sacrifice? Sir Guy shrugged. It is said that if you offer blood to the dark gods, they grant boons. Yes, if a blood offering is made at the proper time, when the moon and the stars are right, and with the proper ceremonies, they grant boons. Boons of youth. Eternal youth. But that's nonsense. No, that's Jack the Ripper. I stood up. A most interesting theory, I told him. 
But why do you come here and tell it to me? I'm not an authority on witchcraft. I'm not a police official or criminologist. I'm a practicing psychiatrist. What's the connection? Sir Guy smiled. You are interested, then? Well, yes, there must be some point. There is. But I wish to be assured of your interest first. Now I can tell you my plan. And just what is that plan? Sir Guy gave me a long look. John Comedy, he said, you and I are going to capture Jack the Ripper. 2. That's the way it happened. I've given the gist of that first interview in all its intricate and somewhat boring detail because I think it's important. It helps to throw some light on Sir Guy's character and attitude and in view of what happened after that. But I'm coming to those matters. Sir Guy's thought was simple. It wasn't even a thought, just a hunch. You know the people here, he told me. I've inquired. That's why I came to you as the ideal man for my purpose. You number amongst your acquaintances many writers, painters, poets, the so-called intelligentsia, the lunatic fringe from the near north side. For certain reasons, never mind what they are, my clues lead me to infer that Jack the Ripper is a member of that element. He chooses to pose as an eccentric. I have a feeling that with you to take me around and introduce me to your set, I might hit upon the right person. It's all right with me, I said, but just how are you going to look for him? As you say, he might be anybody, anywhere, and you have no idea what he looks like. He might be young or old. Jack the Ripper, a jack-of-all-trades, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, how will you know? We shall see, Sir Guy sighed heavily, but I must find him at once. Why the hurry? Sir Guy sighed again. Because in two days, he will kill again. Are you sure? Sure as the stars. I've plotted this chart, you see. All of the murders correspond to certain astrological rhythm patterns. If, as I suspect, he makes a blood sacrifice to renew his youth, he must murder within two days. Notice the pattern of his first crimes in London. August 7th, then August 31st, September 8th, September 30th, November 9th, Intervals of twenty-four days, nine days, twenty-two days. He killed two this time, and then forty days. Of course, there were crimes in between. There had to be, but they weren't discovered and pinned on him. At any rate, I've worked out a pattern for him based on all my data, and I say that within the next two days he kills, so I must seek him out somehow before then. And I'm still asking you what you want me to do. Take me out said Sir Guy. Introduce me to your friends. Take me to parties. But where do I begin? As far as I know, my artistic friends, despite their eccentricities, are all normal people. So is the Ripper. Perfectly normal, except on certain nights. Again, that faraway look in Sir Guy's eyes. Then he becomes an ageless, pathological monster, crouching to kill. All right, I said. All right, I'll take you. We made our plans, and that evening I took him over to Lester Baston's studio. As we ascended to the penthouse roof in the elevator, I took the opportunity to warn Sir Guy. Baston's a real screwball, I cautioned him. So are his guests. Be prepared for anything and everything. I am. 
Sir Guy Hollis was perfectly serious. He put his hand in his trouser pocket and pulled out a gun. What the... I began. If I see him, I'll be ready, Sir Guy said. He didn't smile either. But you can't go running around at a party with a loaded revolver in your pocket, man. Don't worry, I won't behave foolishly. I wondered. Sir Guy Hollis was not, to my way of thinking, a normal man. We stepped out of the elevator, went toward Baston's apartment door. By the way, I murmured, just how do you wish to be introduced? Shall I tell them who you are and what you're looking for? I don't care. Perhaps it would be best to be frank. But don't you think that the Ripper, if by some miracle he or she is present, will immediately get the wind up and take cover? I think the shock of the announcement that I am hunting the Ripper would provoke some kind of betraying gesture on his part, said Sir Guy. It's a fine theory, but I warn you, you're going to be in for a lot of ribbing. This is a wild bunch. Sir Guy smiled. I'm ready, he announced. I have a little plan of my own. Don't be shocked at anything I do. I nodded and knocked on the door. Baston opened it and poured out into the hall. His eyes were as red as the maraschino cherries in his Manhattan. He teetered back and forth, regarding us very gravely. He squinted at my square-cut Homburg hat and Sir Guy's mustache. Aha, he intoned, the walrus and the carpenter. I introduced Sir Guy. Welcome, said Baston, gesturing us inside with over-elaborate courtesy. He stumbled after us into the garish parlor. I stared at the crowd that moved restlessly through the fog of cigarette smoke. It was the shank of the evening for this mob. Every hand held a drink, every face held a slightly hectic flush. Over in the corner, the piano was going full blast, but the imperious strains of the march from the love for three oranges couldn't drown out the profanity from the crap game in the other corner. Prokofiev had no chance against African polo, and one set of ivories rattled louder than the other. Sir Guy got a monocle full right away. He saw Laverne Gonister, the poetist, hit Jaime Kralik in the eye. He saw Jaime sit down on the floor and cry until Dick Poole accidentally stepped on his stomach as he walked through to the living room for a drink. He heard Nadia Villanoff, the commercial artist, tell Johnny Oddcut that she thought his tattooing was in dreadful taste, and he saw Barkley Melton crawl under the dining room table with Johnny Oddcut's wife. His zoological observations might have continued indefinitely if Lester Baston hadn't stepped to the center of the room and called for silence by dropping a vase on the floor. "'We have distinguished visitors in our midst,' bawled Lester, waving his empty glass in our direction. "'None other than the walrus and the carpenter. The walrus is Sir Guy Hollis, a something or other from the British Embassy.' The carpenter, as you all know, is our own John Carmody, the prominent dispenser of libido liniment. He turned and grabbed Sir Guy by the arm, dragging him to the middle of the carpet. For a moment I thought Hollis might object, but a quick wink reassured me. He was prepared for this. It is our custom, Sir Guy, said Baston, loudly, to subject our new friends to a little cross-examination, just a little formality at these very formal gatherings, you understand. Are you prepared to answer questions? Sir Guy nodded and grinned. Very well, Baston muttered. Friends, I give you this bundle from Britain. Your witness. Then the ribbing started. I meant to listen. 
but at that moment Lydia Dare saw me and dragged me off into the vestibule for one of those darling I waited for your call all day routines. By the time I got rid of her and went back, the impromptu quiz session was in full swing. From the attitude of the crowd, I gathered that Sir Guy was doing all right for himself. Then Baston himself interjected a question that upset the apple cart. And what, may I ask, brings you to our midst tonight? What is your mission, O walrus? I'm looking for Jack the Ripper. Nobody laughed. Perhaps it struck them all the way it did me. I glanced at my neighbors and began to wonder. Laverne Gonister, Jaime Kralik, Harmless, Dick Poole, Nadia Villanoff, Johnny Oddcut and his wife, Barkley Melton, Lydia Dare, all Harmless. But what a forced smile on Dick Poole's face, and that sly, self-conscious smirk that Barkley Melton wore. Oh, it was absurd, I grant you, but for the first time I saw these people in a new light. I wondered about their lives, their secret lives beyond the scenes of parties. How many of them were playing a part, concealing something? Who here would worship Hecate and grant that horrid goddess the dark boon of blood? Even Lester Baston might be masquerading. The mood was upon us all for a moment. I saw questions flicker in the circle of eyes around the room. Sir Guy stood there, and I could swear he was fully conscious of the situation he'd created, and enjoyed it. I wondered, idly, just what was really wrong with him, why he had this odd fixation concerning Jack the Ripper. Maybe he was hiding secrets, too. Baston, as usual, broke the mood. He burlesqued it. "'The walrus isn't kidding, friends,' he said. He slapped Sir Guy on the back and put his arm around him as he orated. "'Our English cousin is really on the trail of the fabulous Jack the Ripper.' You all remember Jack the Ripper, I presume. Quite a cut-up in the old days, as I recall. Really had some ripping good times when he went out on a tear. The walrus has some idea that the Ripper is still alive, probably prowling around Chicago with a Boy Scout knife. In fact, Baston paused impressively and shot it out in a rasping stage whisper. In fact, he has reason to believe that Jack the Ripper might even be right here in our midst tonight. There was the expected reaction of giggles and grins. Baston eyed Lydia Dare reprovingly. You girls needn't laugh, he smirked. Jack the Ripper might be a woman, too, you know. Sort of a Jill the Ripper. You mean you actually suspect one of us? shrieked Laverne Gonister, simpering up to Sir Guy. But that Jack the Ripper person disappeared years ago, didn't he? In 1888. Aha! interrupted Baston. How do you know so much about it, young lady? Sounds suspicious. Watch her, Sir Guy. She may not be as young as she appears. These lady poets have dark pasts. The tension was gone, the mood was shattered, and the whole thing was beginning to degenerate into a trivial party joke. The man who had played the march was eyeing the piano with a schizo gleam in his eye that augured ill for Prokofiev. Lydia Dare was glancing at the kitchen, waiting to make a break for another drink. Then Baston caught it. "'Guess what?' he yelled. "'The walrus has a gun!' His embracing arm had slipped and encountered the hard outline of the gun in Sir Guy's pocket. He snatched it out before Hollis had the opportunity to protest. I stared hard at Sir Guy, wondering if this thing had carried far enough. 
but he flicked a wink my way, and I remembered he had told me not to be alarmed. So I waited as Baston broached a drunken inspiration. "'Let's play fair with our friend the walrus,' he cried. "'He came all the way from England to our party on this mission. "'If none of you is willing to confess, "'I suggest we give him a chance to find out the hard way.' "'What's up?' asked Johnny Oddcut. "'I'll turn out the lights for one minute. "'Sir Guy can stand here with his gun. "'If anyone in this room is the Ripper, "'he can either run for it or take the opportunity to, well... Eradicate his pursuer. Fair enough. It was even sillier than it sounds, but it caught the popular fancy. Sir Guy's protests went unheard in the ensuing babble, and before I could stride over and put in my two cents worth, Lester Baston had reached the light switch. Don't anybody move, he announced, with a fake solemnity. For one minute we will remain in darkness, perhaps at the mercy of a killer. At the end of that time... I'll turn up the lights again and look for bodies. Choose your partners, ladies and gentlemen. The lights went out. Somebody giggled. I heard footsteps in the darkness, mutterings. A hand brushed my face. The watch on my wrist ticked violently. But even louder, rising above it, I heard another thumping. The beating of my heart. Absurd, standing in the dark with a group of tipsy fools, and yet there was real terror lurking here, rustling through the velvet blackness. Jack the Ripper prowled in darkness like this, and Jack the Ripper had a knife. Jack the Ripper had a madman's brain and a madman's purpose. But Jack the Ripper was dead, dead and dust these many years by every human law. Only... There are no human laws when you feel yourself in the darkness, when the darkness hides and protects and the outer mask slips off your face, and you feel something welling up within you, a brooding, shapeless purpose that is brother to the blackness. Sir Guy Hollis shrieked. There was a grisly thud. Baston put the lights on. Everybody screamed. Sir Guy Hollis lay sprawled on the floor in the center of the room. The gun was still clutched in his hand. I glanced at the faces, marveling at the variety of expressions human beings can assume when confronting horror. All the faces were present in the circle. Nobody had fled, and yet Sir Guy Hollis lay there. Laverne Gonister was wailing and hiding her face. All right. Sir Guy rolled over and jumped to his feet. He was smiling. Just an experiment, eh? If Jack the Ripper were among those present and thought I had been murdered, he would have betrayed himself in some way when the lights went on and he saw me lying there. I am convinced of your individual and collective innocence. Just a gentle spoof, my friends. Hollis stared at the goggling Baston and the rest of them crowding in behind him. Shall we leave, John? he called to me. It's getting late, I think. Turning, he headed for the closet. I followed him. Nobody said a word. It was a pretty dull party after that. 3. I met Sir Guy the following evening as we agreed on the corner of 29th and South Halsted. After what had happened the night before, I was prepared for almost anything. But Sir Guy seemed matter-of-fact enough as he stood huddled against a grimy doorway and waited for me to appear. Boo, I said, 
jumping out suddenly. He smiled. Only the betraying gesture of his left hand indicated that he'd instinctively reached for his gun when I startled him. All ready for our wild goose chase? I asked. Yes, he nodded. I'm glad that you agreed to meet me without asking questions, he told me. It shows you trust my judgment. He took my arm and edged me along the street slowly. It's foggy tonight, John, said Sir Guy Hollis. Like London. I nodded. Cold, too, for November. I nodded again and half shivered my agreement. Curious, mused Sir Guy. London fog and November. The place and time of the Ripper murders. I grinned through darkness. Let me remind you, Sir Guy, that this isn't London, but Chicago, and it isn't November 1888. It's over fifty years later. Sir Guy returned my grin, but without mirth. I'm not so sure at that, he murmured. Look about you. Those tangled alleys and twisted streets, they're like the East End, Mitre Square, and surely they are as ancient as fifty years at least. You're in the black neighborhood of South Clark Street, I said shortly, and why you dragged me down here I still don't know. It's a hunch, Sir Guy admitted. Just a hunch on my part, John. I want to wander around down here. There's the same geographical conformation in these streets as in those courts where the Ripper roamed and slew. That's where we'll find him, John. Not in the bright lights, but down here in the darkness. The darkness where he waits and crouches. Isn't that why you brought a gun? I asked. I was unable to keep a trace of sarcastic nervousness from my voice. All this talk, this incessant obsession with Jack the Ripper, got on my nerves more than I cared to admit. We may need a gun, said Sir Guy gravely. After all, tonight is the appointed night. I sighed. We wandered on through the foggy, deserted streets. Here and there a dim light burned above a gin mill doorway. Otherwise, all was darkness and shadow. Deep, gaping alleyways loomed as we proceeded down a slanting side street. We crawled through that fog, alone and silent, like two tiny maggots floundering within a shroud. "'Can't you see there's not a soul around these streets?' I said. "'He's bound to come,' said Sir Guy. "'He'll be drawn here. This is what I've been looking for. A genius loci. An evil spot that attracts evil. Always, when he slays, it's in the slums.' You see, that must be one of his weaknesses. He has a fascination for squalor. Besides, the women he needs for sacrifice are more easily found in the dives and stewpots of a great city. Well, let's go into one of the dives or stewpots, I suggested. I'm cold. Need a drink. This damn fog gets into your bones. You Britishers can stand it, but I like warmth and dry heat. We emerged from our side street and stood upon the threshold of an alley. Through the white clouds of mist ahead, I discerned a dim blue light, a naked bulb dangling from a beer sign above an alley tavern. Let's take a chance, I said. I'm beginning to shiver. Lead the way, said Sir Guy. I led him down the alley passage. We halted before the door of the dive. What are you waiting for? he asked. Just looking in, I told him. This is a rough neighborhood, Sir Guy. Never know what you're liable to run into. And I'd prefer we didn't get into the wrong company. Some of these places resent white customers. Good idea, John. I finished my inspection through the doorway. Looks deserted, I murmured. Let's try it. We entered a dingy bar. 
A feeble light flickered above the counter and railing, but failed to penetrate the further gloom of the back booths. A gigantic black lolled across the bar. He scarcely stirred as we came in, but his eyes flicked open quite suddenly, and I knew he noted our presence and was judging us. Evening, I said. He took his time before replying, still sizing us up. Then he grinned. Evening, gents. What's your pleasure? Gin, I said. Two gins. It's a cold night. That's right, gents. He poured. I paid and took the glasses over to one of the booths. We wasted no time in emptying them. I went over to the bar and got the bottle. Sir Guy and I poured ourselves another drink. The big man went back into his doze with one wary eye half open against any sudden activity. The clock over the bar ticked on. The wind was rising outside, tearing the shroud of fog to ragged shreds. Sir Guy and I sat in the warm booth and drank our gin. He began to talk and the shadows crept up about us to listen. He rambled a great deal. He went over everything he'd said in the office when I met him, just as though I hadn't heard it before. The poor devils with obsessions are like that. I listened very patiently. I poured Sir Guy another drink, and another, but the liquor only made him more talkative. How he did run on about ritual killings and prolonging life unnaturally, the whole fantastic tale came out again, and, of course, he maintained his unyielding conviction that the Ripper was abroad tonight. I suppose I was guilty of goading him. Very well, I said, unable to keep the impatience from my voice. Let us say that your theory is correct, even though we must overlook every natural law and swallow a lot of superstition to give it any credence but let us say for the sake of argument that you are right. Jack the Ripper was a man who discovered how to prolong his own life through making human sacrifices. He did travel around the world, as you believe. He is in Chicago now, and he is planning to kill. In other words, let us suppose that everything you claim is gospel truth. So what? What do you mean, so what? said Sir Guy. I mean, so what? I answered. If all this is true, it still doesn't prove that by sitting down in a dingy gin mill on the south side, Jack the Ripper is going to walk in here and let you kill him, or turn him over to the police, and come to think of it, I don't even know now just what you intend to do with him if you ever did find him. Sir Guy gulped his gin. I'd capture the bloody swine, he said. Capture him and turn him over to the government, together with all the papers and documentary evidence I've collected against him over a period of many years. I've spent a fortune investigating this affair, I tell you, a fortune. His capture will mean the solution of hundreds of unsolved crimes. Of that, I am convinced. In vino veritas. Or was all this babbling the result of too much gin? It didn't matter. Sir Guy Hollis had another. I sat there and wondered what to do with him. The man was rapidly working up to a climax of hysterical drunkenness. "'That's enough,' I said, putting out my hand as Sir Guy reached for the half-emptied bottle again. "'Let's call a cab and get out of here. It's getting late and it doesn't look as though your elusive friend is going to put in his appearance. Tomorrow, if I were you, I'd plan to turn all those papers and documents over to the FBI. If you're so convinced of the truth of your theory—' They are competent to make a very thorough investigation and find your man. No, Sir Guy was drunkenly obstinate. No cab. But let's get out of here anyway, I said, glancing at my watch. It's past midnight. 
He sighed, shrugged, and rose unsteadily. As he started for the door, he tugged the gun free from his pocket. Here, give me that, I whispered. You can't walk around the street brandishing that thing. I took the gun and slipped it inside my coat. Then I got hold of his right arm and steered him out the door. The black man didn't look up as we departed. We stood shivering in the alleyway. The fog had increased. I couldn't see either end of the alley from where we stood. It was cold, damp, dark, fog, or no fog. A little wind was whispering secrets to the shadows at our backs. Sir Guy, despite his incapacity, still stared apprehensively at the alley, as though he expected to see a figure approaching. Disgust got the better of me. Childish foolishness, I snorted. Jack the Ripper, indeed. I call this carrying a hobby too far. Hobby? He faced me. Through the fog I could see his distorted face. You call this a hobby? Well, what is it? I grumbled. Just why else are you so interested in tracking down this mythical killer? My arm held his, but his stare held me. In London, he whispered. In 1888, one of those nameless drabs the Ripper slew was my mother. What? Later I was recognized by my father and legitimatized. We swore to give our lives to find the Ripper. My father was the first to search. He died in Hollywood in 1926 on the trail of the Ripper. They said he was stabbed by an unknown assailant in a brawl, but I knew who that assailant was. So I've taken up his work. Do you see, John? I've carried on, and I will carry on until I do find him and kill him with my own hands. I believed him then. He wouldn't give up. He wasn't just a drunken babbler anymore. He was fanatical, as determined, as relentless as the Ripper himself. Tomorrow, he'd be sober. He'd continue the search. Perhaps he'd turn those papers over to the FBI. Sooner or later, with such persistence, and with his motive, he'd be successful. I'd always known he had a motive. Let's go, I said, steering him down the alley. Wait a minute, said Sir Guy. Give me back my gun, he lurched a little. I'd feel better with the gun on me. He pressed me into the dark shadows of a little recess. I tried to shrug him off, but he was insistent. Let me carry the gun now, John, he mumbled. All right, I said. I reached into my coat, brought my hand out. But that's not a gun, he protested. That's a knife. I know. I bore down on him swiftly. John, he screamed. Never mind the John, I whispered, raising the knife. Just call me Jack. That was Robert Block's Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, as read by Josh Roseman. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, has a new collection out, The Clockwork Russian and Other Stories, bringing together his best published works from the last six years, including appearances in Asimov's Escape Pod and Doomstief Audio Fiction Magazine. Find him online at roseplusman.com and follow him on Twitter or Instagram at listener42. Link to all of that will be in the show notes. And thank you, Josh.
That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.